Hey, I'm Michael Wood, lead pastor at First West. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here in just a second, we're gonna dive into God's word and to see what it says about who he is, about who we are, and about the hope that can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that today God's word will encourage you, it'll challenge you, and it'll allow you to see that no matter where we find ourselves, there's always hope because of Jesus Christ. So let's dig in and see what God has for us today in his word. Good deal. Hey, it's so good to see you today and uh, so glad that you've joined us, whether you're in the room or watching online with us. I want to invite you to take your Bible and go to the book of Malachi, the book of Malachi. I'm going to make it easy on you. Go to the book of Matthew and turn back one page and you'll be there. You can kind of get there in reverse today, but man, it's so good to be with you, to be worshiping together. Uh, grateful for the reading of God's word, singing of God's word, um, man, hearing stories of what God is doing among the nations. Just a great, great day today. Uh, and it's good to be back with you. Uh, I was with our Calhoun campus last week. I know you didn't miss me uh, with Jason McGuffey being here. Uh, I loved it this morning. One of the first people I ran into, the first, one of the first things they said was, hey, Michael, now listen, I love your preaching, but, and I was like, here we go. You love Jason, I know. But he is a gift, man. We are gifted with an incredible staff team here of guys that can bring God's word. It's funny, uh, my family was actually here last week. And uh, when, when I met them for lunch, uh, my, one of my boys said, said, Dad, Jason preached for 41 minutes. <laughs> I said, son, I preached for 42. So... So you guys received some grace last week. You only had to put up with 41, uh, 41 minutes, but it was 14 chapters, and that's a lot to cover. But I know you were blessed by the book of Zechariah. I know I was, uh, was, was a real blessing. Hey, before we jump in today, I want to let you know of something. Um, Many of you, if not all of you are aware of the historic moment uh, in our nation for a couple weeks ago, the overturning of Roe v. Wade and, uh, and what that has meant. Now, it's not over. Uh, as I told you a couple weeks ago, this time for the church to step up more than ever for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus and to, uh, to, to be present uh, and, and, and to be sacrificial and just to exhibit the character and the heart and the service of Jesus, right? Um, but I want to let you know this coming Tuesday night, um, Life Choices, which is our, our pregnancy center here in, in uh, North East Louisiana, uh, they're having a night of prayer and praise just to, to celebrate and to call out to God uh, to just continue to, uh, to, to lead us as we try to lead uh, in, in this area, in our community and around our nation. And so that'll be Tuesday night at 630. Um, all the churches are invited, be, as I said, a time of prayer and praise. Uh, I'll be a part of that night along with other pastors in our community. And so just want to make sure you're aware of that. And that invitation is extended to you. Should be a great night joining with our other brothers and sisters in our community of giving, giving thanks to God for what he is doing. All right, let's jump into the book of Malachi. Uh, today, we touch the tape. We finish the race through the minor prophets. I didn't hear an amen for that, and I'm thankful, right? It has been an incredible journey over the last two summers to walk through a bunch of books that for most of you, you've never really really heard a sermon for. You, you may have never even read it before, but uh, our hope has been not just that it gives you some information about the book of the Bible that you may not have been aware of, but it helps you to see God's sovereignty and God's design and his plan and what he's doing, and that even in these books from hundreds of years before Jesus would ever show up, that we still see Jesus as the centerpiece of all that God is doing. And the way we've done that is through this idea of a baseball theme, talking about first base, second base, third base, and home 
home. And so uh, the way we'll tackle Malachi today is first base is going to be background information. Give us some information about the book. Second base is going to be biblical observations. What is actually in the book of Malachi? As I told you in the past, third base is going to be gospel revelation. For us, that comes from Luke chapter 24, where we see Jesus walking with the two disciples And it says, when they recognized Jesus, that he began to explain to them everything about himself, beginning with Moses and the prophets. So Jesus understood, and we can understand now through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that even in the Old Testament, it was pointing forward to the centerpiece of this book and to all of creation, and that's Jesus. And then finally, we're going to touch home base with just some life application. What what is the book of Malachi? What does it mean for you today? So as we jump into this book, kind of our main idea that we're going to be chasing after today is this, is that mocking a faithful God with unfaithful living has major consequences. Mocking A faithful God with unfaithful living has major consequences. Now, I know that's heavy, um, but it's, I think, gives us clarity on what this book is about. Let's jump into first base here and some background information about the book of Malachi. Let's begin in verse uh, 1, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, a pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. That doesn't give us much there. If you've been on this journey with us, you know a lot of times when they name the author, they're going to give at least one, usually two generations of, of where they come from. Sometimes we learn about their profession. We knew with Zechariah that he was probably a priest. But for Malachi, we really don't know much. In fact, the word Malachi means my messenger. So some people believe, they would say that Malachi, we don't even know that Malachi was actually Malachi. That it may be just saying that this is the word of the Lord that was given through his messenger. Some people believe that this is actually Ezra. You may be familiar with that name, some of you. Uh, But most scholars, most scholars do believe that this was an actual man named Malachi. But we don't have any other information about him other than what God delivered through him. And as we're going to see in this book, where in other books we may learn a little bit about the prophet, or the prophet may do something as a part of what God had asked them to do, really for Malachi, it's nothing more than opening his mouth and sharing what the Lord is saying. One of the things that's unique about this book is that there are 55 verses throughout the entirety of the book, and in 47 of the 55 verses is the Lord speaking. So the Lord's doing a lot of talking here. In fact, he's not even really giving the people an opportunity to listen. He is just sharing for them, and you're going to hear in just a moment why that was so important. The date of Malachi is somewhat connected to the last two weeks in the sense of, you guys remember that when God's people walked in disobedience, they were taken into exile by the Babylonians, which were overtaken by the Persians, and then they came back. So you have pre-exilic, which would mean before the exile. Then you have post-exilic, which would mean after the exile or after they had returned. So over the last two weeks, we looked at Haggai and Zechariah. Those are post-exilic, after they had come back. And if you remember, those books were about the rebuilding of the temple. Right? Haggai was kind of giving them a kick in the pants and saying, hey, get to work. You're living in your nice paneled houses, but the Lord's house has not been rebuilt. Build his house. And then for Zechariah, it was more about the spiritual care of the people and comforting their people. And God saying, listen, the temple is going to be rebuilt. The nations are going to be judged. The people are going to be purified. And so we find ourselves in another post-exilic book, but it brings us about 100 years after Haggai and Zechariah. 
And if you remember with Zechariah, God had told the people, listen, you're to walk in obedience. Remember your ancestors, they walked in disobedience, and because of that, I scattered them. But he said, I'm going to have grace on you, so repent, love truth, love justice, and do what is right in the eyes of God. And unfortunately, what we're going to see is that a century after God had given that command, that that's not the case. That the people are not walking in obedience. Many people believe that Malachi is written around the same time uh, as what's happening in Nehemiah. Some of you are familiar with Nehemiah, that he had come back to build the walls of Jerusalem. At one point, he goes back to Persia, and they believe that this is the time in which Malachi is writing because Malachi and Nehemiah are saying a lot of the same things about um, the unfaithful living of God's people. All right, so the temple has been built but the people are not living in a way that honors the Lord. Let's jump to second base, biblical observation. I want you to do something for me. If you have your Bible in front of you or if you're looking on your phone or your iPad, I want you to turn to the very end of the book of Malachi, to the very end. Now, in my Bible, I have the end of, uh, of the book of Malachi, and then I've got a separate page here that says the New Testament. You may not have that. It may just jump straight to, uh, to the book of Matthew. Here's what I want you to understand because I think it informs our understanding of the book of Malachi is that between the very last verse of the book of Malachi and the very beginning verse of the book of Matthew, we have 400 years of silence. 400 years, four centuries of God not saying a peep to his people. Now, that's significant for a lot of reasons. But I want you to catch today that in a sense, this is the last thing that God is going to say to his people before he goes quiet. I do think part of the reason that he does go quiet is because of the consequences of their unfaithful living. But we're going to have 400 years of silence. This is, in a sense, the, the last thing that you would say to a loved one before you leave. To the parent who drops their kids off for college. You're about to get in that vehicle to head home, right? You're going to give them some important instruction you want them to know. And in light of their unfaithful living, God is going to speak into their life. And there's some things I want you to see about it. The first one is this, is to understand that the discipline of God is driven by the love of God. The discipline of God is driven by the love of God. As we look at the book of Malachi, we're going to see six different kind of conversations that God is going to have with the people of Israel. Now, in these conversations, God is going to play the voice of the Israelite people as well. But I want in, in these six, the, the second through the six, we're going to cover together. But this first one, I want to pull out by itself because I want you to understand the foundation of what he is about to say to his people. And the foundation is God's heart for them. Look at me in verse 2 and 3 of Malachi chapter 1. Verse 2 says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even even so, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and given his inheritance to the desert jackals. 
Now, we see him referencing there this moment back with Isaac's kids, Jacob and Esau, and uh, we don't have time to go into that today, but we see in God's sovereignty and his plan, his decision was to take the younger, was to take uh, Jacob, and his lineage would go through Jacob. But I want you to see as he's going to begin this conversation with them and as he is going to point out things about unfaithful living in their life, the starting place for God is to remind them, I have loved you. The things that I'm about to say to you, the things that I'm going to address, here as God is going to call a spade a spade in the lives of these people, God is reminding them that this is coming from a place of love. And that makes a significant difference on how we receive things that are spoken into our life. There are people in our church that I have told them, I know that you love the Lord. I know that you love our church. I know that you love our staff. I know that you love our family, that my family, and I know and I believe that you love me as an individual. And because I believe those things are true, you can say whatever you want to me. Why would I say that? Because I know where it's coming from, right? I know that even if they say something hard to me or something that I may disagree with, I can receive it because I know that they are saying it from a place of wanting the best for the Lord and for our church and for our staff and for my family and for me. And so we see here this discipline that he's going to speak into their lives. He is reminding them from the get-go, I have loved you. This is not an issue of of coming from a place of spite or a place of arrogance. This is motivated. This discipline is coming from a place of love. In fact, look with me in Psalm 78. It'll be on the screens, verse 67 through 69. Psalm 78 is talking about the history of God's relationship with Israel. And verse 67, he says, He rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. He chose instead the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that he established forever. It's a reminder for us of God's covenant relationship that he had made with the Israelites. He had said to them, listen, this is not because you've earned it. This is not because you're so great. This is because of my love for you that I am choosing you, that you, Israel, will be a light, will be a blessing to the nations. And it was driven, it was motivated by love. And so today, as we consider what he's going to say to the Israelites, as we think about the personal application for us, would you know that when you walk through a difficult moment as an act of discipline from God's hand, it is absolutely motivated by his love for you. In the same way that parents, that you discipline your kids out of love. I was going to say grandparents, you discipline, but grandparents, you don't discipline, do you? No, you don't. You just give them more candy, right? (laughs) But it is driven by his love. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, right? Verse 7 and 8, endure suffering as discipline. It's a reminder for us that God is dealing with us as sons. He says, for what son is there that a father does not discipline? It's a reminder for us. And so to these people that are walking in uh, direct rebellion to what God has called them to, even at the offering of when you walk in obedience, there will, bless, there will be blessing to come. They have turned their, 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 turned their back on that, chosen to walk in their own way, and still God is saying, I've loved you. I have absolutely loved you. Let's continue through the book. We're going to take a big chunk here. The second point is that God takes covenant unfaithfulness seriously. 
God takes covenant unfaithfulness seriously. I told you there are six instances that he's going to give through this book of addressing the unfaithful living of his people. And so the first one I just said there, they, they were asking, how have you loved us? They, they weren't uh, understanding God's heart for them. And so God takes covenant unfaithful seriously. How do we see that? The first one is this. In chapter 1, verse 6, all the way down through chapter 2, verse 9, we see the failure of the priest. The failure of the priest is they were to be the ones that were leading God's people spiritually, and yet they were failing to do so. Look with me in verse 6 through 8. God says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where's your fear of me, says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name? Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? And the Lord says, by presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask, when you say the Lord's table is contemptible? When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. So what we're able to deduct from these questions in this moment is that you had the priests of God that were to be leading the sacrificial system in this newly built temple, and God had given them very clear instruction to his people that when you come and offer a sacrifice, it is to be an unblemished animal. You are to bring to the Lord your very, very best. They absolutely knew that. But what they were doing didn't match up with what they knew. And what we see here is that they are coming and they are making their sacrifices. They are going through their religious ritual, but they're taking shortcuts. They're not bringing the unblemished lamb. They're bringing here the blind one or the sick one. Why would this be so important to God that we would bring or that his people would bring an unblemished lamb? Number one, I think it was important because he wanted them to understand the costs of their sin. To understand that when they would bring that to atone for their sin and to worship God, this wasn't just some light thing. He wanted them to feel the weight of it as they looked at their flock and they had to think about the cost of taking the one that was most prized, the one that was most precious, and to take that to the Lord. But secondly, we know that it was painting a picture for us of the true Lamb of God that would come with no sin. But here they are. The, the priests are, are failing to the point that God is saying, I wish you would just close the temples. I wish you would just shut it down. I want you to see today. I don't want you to miss today that in the book of Malachi, God was not okay with half-hearted worship, and I want you to know it's still the same today. God doesn't need us to fulfill some ritual. God's desire from the very beginning is that his people would come with heartfelt worship. And so the priests here are leading the people in a direction that is not good. And, and he's going to say later on in chapter 1, he's going to say, listen, I am going to be glorified among the nations. He says at the end of chapter 1, listen, it is the nations that will fear me. All the world will, will, will glorify me. And yet here are my people that I have been faithful to. And they are bringing me not just their second best. Really, they're bringing me their worst. And so we see... We see what he says to them in chapter 2. Look at me in verse 3. He says, look, I'm going to rebu rebuke your descendants. 
And I will spread animal waste over your faces, the waste from your festival sacrifices, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I sent you this decree so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of armies. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave these to him and I called for reverence and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. God's saying, there's gonna be consequences for your half-hearted worship. The second thing we see here in chapter two, verse 10 through verse 16 is the failure of the marital covenant. Two issues that he's dealing with. Uh, number one was the issue of them marrying foreign wives. God had been very clear with them from the beginning that they were not to do that. This was not an issue of God uh, not uh, um, uh, trying to, or it wasn't, the issue of racial or ethnic purity, that God was trying to protect the racial or ethnic purity of his people. He was trying to protect the religious purity of his people. I can't tell you how often I hear it when, when someone who maybe is coming to our church or going to another church and they say, well, you know, um, uh, my, 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 uh, my wife was Baptist. I grew up Methodist, so you know what that means? I'm Baptist, right? Some of you here, that's your story. Even in my own family, my, my dad grew up free will Baptist. My mom grew up United Methodist. They got married and became Southern Baptists. I don't get it, but that's what happened, right? And, and so, so we understand the significance of the primary person in your life and what is the core conviction for them and who they will worship and how they will worship. That matters, doesn't it? And God understood that. And so he had given his instruction to his people that if, if God, if the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if he is the one true God in your life, why would you go marry someone who would say that Baal is the worship, gets the worship of my life? Because he knew, God knew exactly what would happen in that. And so what we find is that God's people are being unfaithful again and that they are doing this. They are marrying people outside of those that are worshiping the Lord. And so we see the same commandment pulled over in the New Testament, don't we? The call for believers not to be unequally yoked. Because Malachi, being the voice here of God, understood it. And the Apostle Paul understood it. For some of us in our own lives and in our families, we have seen the impact that that has. And so we say that as believers, the call that if, if Christ is going to be the primary affection of my life, if a biblical worldview is going to be the thing that directs the way that I live and the way that I have relationships and handle my finances and every facet of my life, why would I choose to yoke myself to someone to be the primary person in my life who doesn't align with that? And so we see that they were being unfaithful in that. The second thing that we see as we continue through this section is not just that they were marrying foreign wives, but that they were actively divorcing their current wives. Now we know, hear me clearly, and we're going to talk about this in three weeks as we jump back into 1 Corinthians next week, but in three weeks we'll talk more in detail about this. But we know there are some biblical allowances that are given in Scripture for divorce. We know that. But what we find here in this instance is that the people of God were divorcing not because of a biblical allowance, but because they just didn't really like each other anymore. They didn't love each other anymore. They thought there were new options, new opportunities in front of them. And so the word that he's going to use here is that you are acting treacherously with one another. Look at me in verse 14 and 15. He says, and you ask why? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? 
What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. What was happening with God's people is that they were not taking seriously the union, the covenant commitment that we see in Genesis 2 of leaving father and mother and becoming one flesh. When I do a wedding, right when we get to the vows, I always take a moment to say to the bride and to the groom, I want you to understand the weight of what is happening right now. That you are making these vows, not just between one another with me as a witness, you're making this not between one another with your family as a witness or your friends as a witness, but you are vowing to give yourselves to one another and one another alone for the rest of your lives till death do you part. And you are giving that vow in the eyes of God and he expects that you fulfill that vow. And what we have seen in our culture and sadly what has happened in the church as well is that that commitment has gone down and down and down and down. And what we see here is that God's desire and design has not changed. And to this day it has not changed. And so we see in, in verse 16, what oftentimes is quoted where it's quoted is that God hates divorce, and that is one translation. The translation of the CSB is different. I think it might be, I'm saying this very humbly, that it might be the better translation here in, in reference to the husband. It says, if he hates and divorces his wife, he covers his garment with injustice. The idea there of divorce, not from a biblical allowance, but simply out of an emotional decision. Again, we're going to jump more into that in three weeks, so get ready for that lighthearted message, all right? And so he's having to address this issue and how they're dealing with marriage. The next one that we see in verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17 through uh, chapter 3, verse 5, was a failure to believe the judgment of God. A failure to believe the judgment of God. In verse 17, we see again this idea of him asking a question and then responding for the people. You've wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him? And then he says there, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight and delighted with them, or else where is the God of justice? Basically, it's an attitude of saying, God, what are you doing? God, are you asleep, basically? And we see that he's going to say here in verse 5 and 6, he says, I will come to you in judgment, and I will be ready to witness against the sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies, because I, the Lord, have not changed. You, descendants of Jacob, have not been destroyed. What we see here is that they have forgotten that God is a God who cares about justice. And God is not okay with injustice. And so we see here him saying that he is going to bring judgment against injustice. The next one is this, chapter 3, verse 6 through 12, the failure to give back to God. The failure to give back to God. Look at me in verse 8 through 10. God says, will a man rob God? I'm sorry, well, yeah. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. Guess what? God gave a tithing sermon, didn't he? Why? Because God understands you can draw a direct line from your checkbook to the motivation of your heart. 
And God had given a commandment to the people that they were to give a tenth. They were to give the first tenth, the very best of what they have. They were to give that to the Lord. They were to give it to the temple for the ministry of what God was doing among his people to be that light to the nations. God had been very clear with them. And what we find here is that they were not walking in obedience to that. And he says, test me in this. You trust me in this and see if I don't bless you. Now, we understand today here at First West that we are not under the old covenant because Jesus has come. We are under the new covenant. And what I've always said at First West is that, listen, we're not under the law anymore that says you must give the first tenth. But I believe that now being under grace, if you're not giving more under grace than they were under the law, you don't understand grace. And so I think giving a tenth is the place to start. And I would pray about, God, how can I be even more generous to take what you have blessed me with and to rightly give it back to you to advance your kingdom? And so if you're, if you're a faithful giver, that's part of the way that you live your life. Did, you, you didn't know. You walked in here today just trusting the Lord as you give faithfully to honor him, to worship him because he's worthy of it. And you may have just learned today that you're making a difference in Bolivia and you didn't even know it. But what we see here is God takes this seriously. Not because he needs our money. The Bible says that our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need it but we need it. We need to be living in such a way that we are honoring God with the first that he has given to us. Why? Because number one, it reminds us that we know that God is the one ultimately who's provided it for us. Two, it keeps a reminder of what is the priority in my life. That when I get to the end of my life and I look back, I'm gonna feel a lot better about what I did with the money that God gave me and sending it forward to make a difference for eternity than just hanging it on to things that will not last. Can I tell you, I think about that. I'm going to step on some toes here, and I'm going to step on my own. I think about that with the hunting trips I love to go on and seeing these mounts that sit on a wall. And you know what my kids are going to do with those? They're going to give them to our, to our thrift store. <laughs> now, I'm not saying you shouldn't hunt. And listen, I got mounts on my wall, okay? But I will never regret at the end of my life for every dollar that I sent forward to impact eternity. I can say that with confidence. And so we also do this, one, because God calls us to. We, we want to obey the Lord. And we want to do it with a cheerful heart, knowing that when I am giving, and it is coming at the first of the month and not just what I have left, it's a reminder to my heart that, Lord, you're the priority. I'm trusting you. And, God, I'm ready to receive the blessing that you promise here and whatever that looks like. And so... What we see here was a failure to do that. Next one is this, to honor the Lord, or their failure to honor the Lord. Their failure to honor the Lord. Look with me in verse 13 through 15. He says, your words against me are harsh, says the Lord, let you, yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? And you have said it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? And so we see this, just this really nonchalant attitude towards honoring the Lord. Now, let's keep moving for time's sake. Number three here in biblical observations is this, is that the promise of God should drive our present actions and future hopes. The promise of God should drive our present actions and future hopes. Look at me in chapter four. We're gonna read all of chapter four. Here's the good news. It's only six verses, all right? He says, for look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branch, but for you who fear my name, 
the son of righteousness, listen to this, will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. Who knows what he's talking about right there? You ever seen a calf come out of a stall before? Boy, he loves life, doesn't he? He loves it, right? So he's saying, for those that fear my name, this coming of the day of the Lord is a day of great joy. He says there in verse 3, you will trample the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Verse 4, remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinance I command him at Horeb and all of Israel. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah, remember that name, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and to the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. So we see here in verse 1 through 3, he's going to speak again. God again through this prophet is going to speak about the day of the Lord, this day that is coming. I've told you that we see in the minor prophets, we see him talk about a day of the Lord. And then we see him talk about the day of the Lord. For the people of Israel, there were days of the Lord that would come, like when the Babylonian exile happened. That was a day of the Lord. That was judgment. But there is a pointing forward to the day of the Lord that is still to come. And he's saying that on that day, those who fear his name, that day will be a day of joy and peace. But for those that are not in him, it will not be. And then look at me in verse 4. Here's where I want you to see that this promise of God should drive our present actions and future hopes. He says, remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. He's saying, as you move forward from this place, I want you to remember back what I have given you and to walk in that as we think about the day of the Lord that is to come, we know that God has laid out for us how to live in such a way in response to the gospel so that when that day of the Lord comes, it is a day of joy for us like the calf coming out of the stall. Now here's what I want us to catch as we touch third and head towards home. We've just come to the very end of the Old Testament, haven't we? 39 books from in the beginning all the way here to Malachi chapter 4. And I just want you to catch in this moment the consistent character of God from the very beginning to the very end. And what we find is a radically faithful God to his people. We could take time and we could, we could reminisce about all the different stories that we remember of what God did through the Old Testament. Even Brad referencing one about, about and, and the song that we sang about God releasing the captives. We see God's faithfulness over and over and over and over and over again, don't we? And what do we find with the people of God over and over and over again? Unfaithful living. And yet God never stops pursuing he never stops pursuing. You ever have those moments when you're getting ready to fix a sandwich and you grab the pickle jar and you go to open it and it just won't open, right? And then you get the little rubber thing, right, out of the drawer, right? You get it and you start opening it and it just won't open. And then it becomes personal, doesn't it? Right, you're with me? This pickle jar will not end, will it? And then you have someone come and like, hey, let me get that. You do not touch this pickle jar, right? And it's everything, and you just go and go and go and go. And then one or two things happen. Either one, you get it open, or two, you, you let everyone know you really didn't want pickles in the first place, right? You change your mind. 
But it's that over and over and over and over again. And here we find this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that said to them, listen, I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people. And over and over and over and over again, he is faithful, 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 faithful. Throughout the centuries of the Old Testament, he is faithful. Today, I don't know where you're at in your journey. But the same God that we sing about today is that same faithful God in your life today. And so we end the book of Malachi. Look at the last word there in the book. Curse. It's very fitting, isn't it? Why? Because the New Testament tells us that the law was given and the law reveals to us that we can't keep the law. And the Bible's clear that because of our sin, we are under that curse of sin, and that sin separates us from God. And the pattern over and over again in the Old Testament was people who could not remain faithful to God. They couldn't do it in themselves. And before we get too quick to criticize them, we look at our own lives and say, you know what, neither could we. And yet here in the book of Malachi, we see a gospel revelation that a curse was not the end of the story, was it? Go with me to chapter three, beginning of chapter three. The Lord says through Malachi, see, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. If you've got your Bible in front of you, you're taking notes, I want you to notice here. If we just read this real quick, we think, okay, that's nice. But I want you to look. It says messenger two times in this verse, but notice the difference. The beginning, it says messenger, and is with uppercase or lowercase? Lowercase. But the second time it uses it, notice what it says here. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in, lowercase or uppercase. So we see that the Lord here is making a, a, a signifying the difference here of two messengers that would come. And I told you to remember the name Elijah, right? Because it said, before the day of the Lord, Elijah will come. And now 400 years of silence until God speaks. And God is going to speak in Luke chapter 1, and it is going to be about this lowercase messenger. As this little messenger would be in the womb of his mother Elizabeth. God would say of this little messenger in Luke chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, that he would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, their fathers, to their children, and that he would go before him in the spirit and power of who? Elijah. In fact, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11 would say that for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah to come. And so what we find is that 400 years before John the Baptist and Jesus show up in the book of Malachi, God is saying to his people, listen, before that day, there is a messenger that will come and he will prepare the way of the messenger, the Lord who is coming to his temple. And once again, 
We see in the minor prophets how God is making it clear to us that Jesus is going to be the central figure of the Bible and hopefully our lives. Some believe that Elijah will return again, that John the Baptist was in the spirit of power, but there'll be a literal return of Elijah. And we see a reference in uh, Revelation chapter 11 of two prophets that come. Some believe that that will be Elijah. But what I don't want you to miss today is that we see clearly the Lord is laying out his plan of saying, listen, the Lord is going to come to his temple, but he's going to come with a messenger. And when that messenger showed up after 400 years of silence, God was very clear to say, listen, this one that comes is coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Let's touch home base today. What's Malachi mean for us today? Several things. Number one, God's discipline in our lives should change us. When those moments come, when we understand the heartbeat of what God is doing, should move us to walk in obedience to him. Number two, God's consistency of character should encourage us. As I said, from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Malachi, over and over again, we see the faithful pursuit of God towards those that are living unfaithfully. And then third, God's word should move us to be faithful. God's word should move us. We should trust the Lord and trust his heart, trust the promises of God, and to walk in a way that brings honor to him. So that's the minor prophets. And the next time you're at a dinner meeting and they say, man, when's the last time you heard a sermon through the book of Nahum? You can say 2019 or t- sorry, 2021. When's the last time you heard a sermon on Zechariah 2022? All right, you got them. But my prayer in this journey, as I said, do we want you to have more information about this book? Absolutely. But I pray more than any of that, that your affection for Jesus has grown. You have seen, as we've walked through these books that for most of you have probably never heard a sermon before, that you've said, golly, even in these books, hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up, God was making it clear that Jesus was going to be the hero of this book. So today, my hope is, again, you've seen that. But the question today for me is not, is he the hero of this book? The question today, is he the hero of your life? Do you know there's been that moment in your life where you have responded to the Lord, that you have put your faith and your trust in Christ? Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We hope again that you were uh, encouraged by what God had to say for you and for your life. I just wanna extend an invitation for you today. Maybe today you realize that you need Jesus in your life. Maybe today you just need to take that next step in your spiritual walk, or maybe you've got a spiritual need. And I want you to know that we would love to come alongside you and serve you any way that we can. Feel free to reach out to us at firstwest.cc, or you can call the church, 318-322-5104. And we would love to help you in what God is doing in your life. Have a great day.